Well, hello, Revelers. I have so much to say about this episode, but oh, it's already long. So I hope you'll bear with me on this very special Mother's Day episode. It was supposed to come out yesterday, but I got the shingles vaccine and it hit me hard. I was out for like two days. So the moral of that story is no matter how hard it hits you, it's better than getting the damn shingles itself. Let's talk about the themes in this amazing interview with Shannon Thompson. And it's perfect for Mother's Day because she's very much about investing in women and girls' lives and making a better world for them. And she has this Gaia thing going on. There's just a very Earth Mother thing about her. I am going to ask you to be patient with this episode because I'm going to have even more information at the end. There's lots of stuff to say. So you know if you got to listen to it little by little and then come back and hear the important stuff at the end, that would be most appreciated. So let's get the ads out of the way. As you know, mental health always comes up and it certainly did on this episode. You are not the only one who is feeling the way you're feeling, overwhelmed, stressed, depleted, whatever it might be, there is a counselor who can help. I believe there's over 17,000 counselors now on betterhelp.com that can meet you either over the phone, by text, by video call, whatever works for you. So if you are feeling like you just need someone to talk to or a little help because 2021 is slightly better, than 2020. But, you know, we're going to be recovering from the last four years for a long time. And if you're dealing with systemic stuff, which definitely comes up in this episode, you'll be dealing with that fun stuff forever. And I say that sarcastically because, as Shannon points out, it's the work of our lives and it can be a beautiful thing. Definitely comes up that we discuss how it's not like a, you go to a retreat and you fix this shit and then everything's all better. No, this is the work that we'll be doing in iterations. So that was the first ad. The second ad is if you want to support the podcasts in any other way, besides using BetterHelp, you can order books through my links on bookshop.org. You can like, follow, share the actual whole podcast or certain episodes with others using social media. And you can leave a review. That would be super helpful. Only a few of the podcast apps do reviews, but the ones that do, it would be helpful. So I appreciate all of you and happy Mother's Day to you listeners. And my heart goes out to everyone who has lost a a mom, a parent, a loved one during COVID that's going to make today hard. So, without further ado, here's Shannon Thompson. Hello, good morning. Hi. Hi. So, you wrote down a la wild card sassy pants. I didn't write that down. My staff did. Well, I love it. Yes, that's why I kept it. I didn't even, to be honest, you know, for someone who's like very present and attentive, I'm not very tech savvy. So I never really knew that that was there until I was in meetings and people kept making these weird comments, but I just rolled with it. I was like, I don't know. People say weird shit to me. And then one day someone said, 
how'd you get that name? And I was like, well, my parents called me Shannon. <laughs> and they were like, no, wild card sassy pants. And I was like, what? <laughs> so, you know. I adore that. Got to go with what's true. Well, welcome, Shannon Thompson, to Revel Revel. It's very exciting to see you and talk to you. Well, I feel grateful to be here and curious about what's going to happen and super honored to be included. You know, curious as to what's going to happen is how we all feel, (laughs) me and the listeners. (laughs) It's life. So as you know, we always start with how we know each other and spoiler, Mount Carmel, but how did we meet? Like, was it a class? Was it Mm. ASB? What, What are your memories? That's a really... I don't know. I'm going to make, this is probably made up. It's like a gesture toward the thing, but I feel like it's true that it would have been through student government and leadership. What was called ASB at Mount Carmel. Okay. So good. I hate not knowing, but I also hate having a false memory even more. So yay, we figured it out. I actually, I'm going to speak into that for 30 seconds. First off, we have a million false memories our memories evolve and change with life. So, you know, really the question is, when is it problematic? Well, if you hang your hat on something and feel like it has to have been true, but like, who cares? We should make up a really amazing story and let it be a false memory. I met you by the lockers on the one day that that hot guy walked by, you know, whatever that is, you know, in a way. And I mean, high school for me was so It was a moment in my life, but it was actually not an important moment. It was an important moment and that I ended up going to drug rehab instead of college and a lot of like my spiritual initiation and intense shit happened for me in that period of time. But it was definitely for me, like it was a moment of reckoning in the sense of me going, I will either live my life being who I'm meant to be or I will not be able to stick around on this planet. Like that's what high school really was for me. So in so many ways, I don't remember anything about it. Like I do remember things like moments like AP history and, and that professor and what that evoked in me. And then I ended up going to UC Santa Cruz, which I never connected the dots until years later that he did too, or that I was actually really good friends with Mrs. Clapperton and got together with her outside of school and shared. I remember when she met her partner who she married and fell in love with. And, you know, like I had these, like this other kind of experience, but like, so I can't remember jack shit really hardly, you know, not just because of the drugs, but also because my life evolved so robustly after that, if that makes any sense. It does. And you've, you've made me feel better about what I recollect and how, regardless of conscious memories, the feelings I have about you, I feel like you were this troubled soul who I couldn't sort of pin down, like you were a moving target in a way. Like, I I kind of feel like I couldn't count on seeing you. Like, is Shannon going to show up to school today? Is Shannon going to be at graduation? I just have like this long lost, how is she? Where is she? What is she doing? Is she okay? Otherness sort of with you. Well, I definitely felt like an other. I mean, I think, you know, it's funny to hear that, right? Because I was a star student. Like I didn't. You sure were. Yeah. I didn't come into trouble, quote unquote, until my senior year. And some of the trouble really arose, Lauren, because I was not into what everyone was supposed to be into. And I was not bought into this whole, like I was already very awake. I don't know if you remember, I tried to start an environmental program and I was involved in mentoring 
middle school age kids about substance abuse. Like I was already an activist and to be that way in North County, Poway, Mount Carmel, I did not, I was not finding my people, (laughs) you know? Also there was this huge wave of a particular religious awakening that happened for a lot of our uh, fellow high school students. And that was not, that's not my spiritual path. And so suddenly everyone decided that they wanted to evangelize me too. So part of me being, you know, not, not there or whatever was I could, I would connect some as I could and have like deep or whatever, but then I would pull back because I just wasn't part of the thing. And we're all different. So I'm not saying that I'm so totally different. Everyone's different. And we know that so many of the women that, and, and, and guys that we were in high school with, had all kinds of backstories that people didn't know. But the but the, the my experience in high school was I was living the 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 undercurrent. I happened to know some of those stories. That was what I was connected to. And even when I was 16, our high school counselor, who was also very close to me, and we met up when I was in college and stuff, and he told my folks and me at 16, you got to get out of here and go to college. You do not, hmm. you don't fit. And he knew that it was going to be difficult. But I had the, the one, this is what I mean, like the piece for me to come to reckon with was I felt like if I did that, I was going to miss something that everybody else was supposedly having that I wasn't. And it turned into like, what's wrong with me that I'm not bought into all this stuff? You know, you know, the thing that was wrong with me is that I just didn't belong in that moment in time. And what was beautiful is that it served me. That was my initiation in the underworld. That was my first big piece of work of reckoning about what does belonging really mean? And what is the path? And, you know, so in a lot of ways, I feel so grateful because I did have killer, awesome connections with people and provocative and spiritual and opening and fun experiences in high school and things that really lasted. People that I carry in my heart really deeply that, yeah, that I treasured. And it was one of our high school classmates who wrote me a letter and told me how my addiction impacted them. And that was the day that I got sober. I didn't I didn't know that I had, they wrote me a letter and said, seeing me break, seeing me give up made them want to give up because if I would give up, then why would someone try? I had no idea I could affect someone else like that. And so I quit. That's the day that I got into recovery. And when was that? December 15th, 1987. Wow. Okay. So let's go back because if you didn't go into recovery until you know, almost 1988. So we had already graduated. You had just said that you were already doing sort of mentoring with younger kids about drugs. So you were using and yet helping others? No, this is before I was using. I didn't start using until I was 17. So I was doing that mentoring while we were still in high school, but so it was before I was using. So I started using, I, I was pretty fast and furious. I started using when I was 17. I went to rehab the fir- in August of 1987. So I was supposed to go to UCLA. Um, I had been accepted at UCLA and Yale and I was supposed to go to UCLA and I had to call them and tell them that I couldn't come because I was going to drug rehab, which I literally did like call them up and say, hi, I'm not exactly sure what to do, but I need to tell you that I have a drug problem and I don't think I should come in August. So I deferred my acceptance. Mm-hmm. I went to rehab in San Diego and I was sober. Let's see, I, I, somewhere in between August and September. And I was sober for about, a, I guess, a couple of months. And then I relapsed and started using again. And nobody knew though, because what I learned in rehab was I learned how to manage mm-hmm. it. So I learned how to, I had my job, I finished high school, you know, did all the things. Um, But I was 
using again. And then I got that letter on December 15th and I quit. That was the last time. That was when my deep, deep dive started. And then I started, so I was already, when I went to rehab, I chose to go to the adult unit. I was 18. So they told me I could do the teen unit or the adult unit. And because I was so precocious and whatever, I did the adult unit. And that was a really interesting decision because it changed everything. It changed the whole trajectory of my life because they were two very different programs. But I ended up starting to kind of mentor some teens that were, they asked me to mentor some teens because I was over in the adult unit doing this thing. And, and I was like, okay, that's what you do when you get into recovery service. So, you know, yeah, of course I'll share something. And um, that's when I started realizing that there was like just so much misunderstanding about teens who were using and what was going on. And so I did some mentoring. And then when I started using again, I stopped because I was like, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not going to affect someone else. So that was just like a couple of months in the end. And then when I quit, in December again, I started mentoring youth. And from there, I've never stopped. I've never gone back. Like I've always been a guide and a mentor and so on and so forth. I mean, I'm it's funny to say that because I'm actually known as an expert in trauma, addiction, mental health, and body image issues, right? Like it's not just so on and so forth. Like I'm actually, you know, I consult. I at one point was traveling and evaluating programs for SAMHSA, which is the federal government on innovative models for doing substance abuse. And I wrote my undergrad thesis critiquing treatment models and especially with youth and women and talking about what we really need to understand collectively about doing the work. And now it's actually, that's becoming more mainstreamed about how we need to re-examine addiction. But so I'm sharing all that not to be like, oh, I'm so great. I'm just sharing that because I was saying so on and so forth. And that's playing down right. like part of what I've done in my life, you know, and it's not, I do want to say this too, it's, it wasn't about a lot of people get into immediately, they're going to go start a program, they're going to do all this stuff to fix themselves. And I want to be really clear, that's not what it was about. I mean, service is a part of my recovery. And it's definitely part of my commitment in life. But I had already been doing it. Like I said, while we were in high school, it's part of what I was really called to. But service and mentoring and being committed like that is part of what also made me really accountable to make sure that I did my own work. Because one of my mentors said, you can't take anyone beyond where you've gone. Mm. And I damn straight knew that everyone I wanted to help out, I wanted them to go farther than I, than I was. And, you know, that's even true for me today. And I have 30 some odd years, you know, of deep soul recovery work. And I have an incredible quality of life. And that's been true for me for a very long time, like decades. But I still feel that drive. I want people to live in that, the depth of what it is to reside inside yourself, to live in your own skin and feel connected and have integrity and to know you're on point with your purpose. So, you know, the, the mentoring has been probably like the crucial fire to ensure that I would show up and do the shit I was supposed to do in my life, you know, as much as it's been me showing up for other people. So let's go back to before we met, because it seems like you... Well, let me, let me first say this. A lot of people, even though I try to prep them and, and they're supposed to do their, you know, own soul exploration type stuff before coming on, I still have to ask questions and poke and prod and get them to think about how their life evolved, unfolded, all of these different things with like themes running throughout. I don't feel like I have to with you. I feel mm -hmm. like you can, you've always been in touch and in tune with this stuff and that I could probably just sit here for an hour and just let you talk. <laughs> mm -hmm. So if I go somewhere that you don't want to go, or you don't think is germane to 
the topic. Just steer me back to where you want to go. That said, where I was going was before we met, even your telling of your story, like I, I guess talking to, you know, our different counselors at school, they already knew by the time you were 16 that you were, let's say, cognizant of who you were and where you wanted to go. And you were just not in a, a really good environment for that. How does a person become so self-aware and cognizant and on the right path, you know, so early on? Well, you know, it's interesting. I love that you're asking this question and I'm going to answer what might look a little bit like a circle, but just stay with me for a moment. This comes up in a lot of different ways in my life. And it's interesting because I have a parallel experience. So I want to speak about this really recently. I was talking to one of my collaborators and coworkers and dear friends and someone I think is I think one of the most brilliant humans. She is a specialist in trauma and recovery and a therapist and a dancer and an artist and motorcycle rider and just really cool human. And she trains all the therapists who work with the military for the United States all over the world. So she trains the people who support the military and their families, right? So she's really incredible. And we were having this conversation about resilience and awareness and blah, blah. And she said to me, yeah, but Shannon, you're different. Mm. You know, like something along the lines of what you said. And I'm like, yeah, but Christy, when I was 18 years old, I was fucked up. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like, dude, I too had to deal with trauma. I was getting into recovery. So not only whatever was going on that had led to that, what happened while I used fast and furious meant that when I decided to go, I went down. Like it wasn't like Hades came and snatched me. It was like, I was like, Hey, anyone, can I get on the back of your bike and ride it? I need to go meet up with Hades in the underworld. Can we get there as fast as possible? You know, it's kind of like that deal. And so a lot of crazy stuff happened. And there was also like the piece of like being really awake and growing up in a community that was never home for me. So I was born and raised in San Diego. I'm grateful to San Diego. Shakti Rising was born in San Diego. My Hawaiian family says that the Pico, the, the birthplace of Shakti Rising is San Diego. But I would never have chose that because I never felt like I fit. Like it just didn't feel like home. And and fortunately in my life, I've lived in incredible places where I felt really at home. So now I know it wasn't me. It's not that it's not a great community. It just wasn't home for me, right? And um, yet I spent a lot of time there. So that feeling, that that living with that, right, is real. Simultaneously for me to even know that as an adolescent, I recognize it's unusual. Now I recognize it, right? But I read and I have a lot of friends and my peers, a lot of my friends are very well-known speakers and teachers and authors. And, you know, they're like, I joke with them, they're famous and I'm their country mouse friend. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they tell these stories about how they were raised up in the woods by these wild people. And they always heard the fairy plant speaking, you know, whatever. And I listen with this sense of longing, like, oh my God, what would that have been like? I grew up in La Mesa and Poway. Okay. Nobody around me was talking about fairies even though I longed for that, you know, like I knew the woods were wild. I felt entranced by the crazy fenced in mountain area we weren't supposed to go to in Poway, but it wasn't like this. Everyone wasn't running in the wild, being connected to the earth then, you know, that I was around. So, you know, I, I think that the only way I can make sense of it in my life now is 
you know, when people say old soul and they'd been saying it to me my whole life, there were some kind of sensibilities that I just was born with, that I just have. And some of it came from 20 year old parents. It, well, my folks were 19 when they got pregnant with me. They were, you know, so they were in college. My mom had to drop out. They were poor working class teenage parents. And that was really difficult. And suffering and difficulty can be a ground to like wake you up and to grow maturity, right? They also can just mess. I mean, not everyone is awake who suffered. Let's be really clear about that. But for me, right? So I came up in some circumstances with, with, and my grandparents, my maternal grandparents particularly played a, a really substantial role in my life. And so they were also of a different generation. Now they didn't live near us. They lived in Los Angeles and I lived in San Diego, but they had a really significant impact in their sense of civic engagement and community organization and democracy and neighborhood and extended family. Like there was all seasons and there were, there were many ways that I can see the threads that they influenced me. And that made me kind of a, of a different time, if you will. So, so some of it is me, some of it is circumstance and some of it is what I was committed to. Like by the time I was in middle school, I was already a seeker, like a straight up spiritual seeker, experience seeker, wanting to understand people seeker. I was having big debates about civil rights and activism and the environment you know, with anyone that I could that would engage with me. I mean, a lot of people were like, you're a kid, I'm not interested. <laughs> so I think it was a choice I made. And I think that that was part of what was, you know, difficult in high school was I, I was trying to grapple with understanding that this made me really, like um, one of my other teachers says, go outside of the village. I went over the wall, out of the village, into the wilds. But in high school, I was still looking back to the village and feeling like, oh my God, I'm missing out. Is it, am I missing out? Like, and I would keep trying to go back to be in the village, if you will, if I can just be with this metaphor and then feeling this acute discomfort and like loneliness and like something's the miss. And there would be parts of it that would work, you know, the friendship, the soulfulness, but then I'd be like, ah, and I'd go back over the village, you know? So it was like my addiction served to be the reckoning of you're not going to make it in the village, girl. That's not your path. This isn't your way. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that I spent my entire adult life living exactly who I'm supposed to be and on purpose, even though that that's meant sometimes a harder path because to face that work and to do that grit and to stay awake in a culture that tells us to go to sleep all the time and just get back in line and go along with what everyone else says and that there's a million people who will tell you, if you do X, Y, and Z, that makes you a good person. And it's like, whereas I think you need to learn to be a critical thinker. You need to be at peace when you lay down at night between you and whatever great intelligence that you are in contact with. And, and that's a heavy burden to bear. Most of us don't want to do that. Mm. I don't understand that. But I do recognize that that's true. Yeah, I think you're right. Most of us don't want to deal with that definitely not on a, on a daily basis, you know, you go, okay, I, I, I went through this reckoning period and now I'm done and I can move on. And like, no, you're never done this always. And that's hard. It's hard to face it every day. We have to do this. I don't want to do this every day. I want to be in Disneyland today. So you defer in college and you go into rehab and 
then what happens? How, how does the universe guide you after you are coming out of rehab and trying to figure out the rest of your life? Mm. Cause that's always a tough part when people are coming out of rehab and then they have to get back into the real world. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think what was tough about it was that everyone around me wanted to act like kind of like that and like, okay, well that's over. And now let's just get on with it. We don't want to talk about it. But the thing that I loved in rehab that I touched was, oh my God, there are people living this deep soulful life. This, the path of recovery for some people is this, it was like, oh my God, you know, like, I was like, there's another way people are doing this. And so then to come back out again, like if we go with that village wilds, all of a sudden everyone was like, okay, phew, get back in the village, get productive. But I was like, oh no, <laughs> like that is what I realized doesn't work for me. So at first I had to like, there was stuff to do. I had to deal with unfinished business, right? I had to come out and take care of like a bunch of things that I had done and make amends where I could and accept where I couldn't make amends. And then Mount Carmel decided to like punish me and prove some point and make me go take three independent study courses to like really get my diploma, mm. which was just absolutely ridiculous. But I was like jumping through hoops. It was just part of my early recovery. And then I get my diploma and found out that I had enough credits. Actually, I had graduated with everyone with like a three, eight, nine, even after dropping out. So this was their way of like fixing me. Apparently it was so ludicrous. This is why I'm working to change the system because they failed miserably. I actually went into the high school counselor's office, not my counselor, but um, whatever that other guy's name was multiple times and said, I have a problem. And they didn't know how to deal with it. They just gave me detention. So, really? oh yeah. So I, you know, did that. And then, you know, when I got a job waitressing or whatever, you know, just to have, just to be doing some stuff. And like I said, then I started using again and then I got clean and and then in really short order, my path really, my spiritual path really opened up in the process of, I found a, a mentor to work with and I started learning about holistic health and dropping deeper into a meditation practice, like with a teacher. And then I had a dream about redwoods. I was standing somewhere where I was in the redwoods and I could see the ocean and I knew that's where I was supposed to go to college, but I had never. So I woke up and I knew it. It was so clear to me that it scared me. Mm -hmm. This is how in my life, this is absolutely how I know things are true because I'm scared. So that means I have to act right. And I don't mean ridiculous, foolish things. I mean, some of them are ridiculous, foolish things, but I mean, like, I just, you know, I could see someone listening to that and deciding that I don't have critical thinking skills. And then I'm just, you know, a, a silly slip of a girl, but this, it takes a lot of guts to follow your intuition and to, and to work that muscle. So anyway, I had this dream and I had never been in a place like that. And I didn't even know what it was, but I absolutely knew where I was going to go. That's where I was supposed to go to school. Now this is a big game change. Cause at this point I still thought I was going to UCLA. I was just filling my time until I was going to go up that fall. And all of a sudden I'm like, Oh my God, every, you know, like, I just was like, Whoa. And then I don't remember how it happened. I was describing it or something. And someone said, oh, it's an awful lot like Santa Cruz. And I felt that feeling in my stomach of feeling like scared and sick to my stomach. And I was like, oh, so I called UCLA and said, I'm not coming, which took so much guts because I still didn't know what was going on. I didn't even know. I had, didn't even know about UC Santa Cruz, blah, blah, blah. Long story short my mom and my grandma and I flew up there because I took, they, I'm really stoked. They, I told them I had this sense that maybe I was supposed to go there and my family did something really unusual 
and rallied. Like what's unusual is that there was no substance. They just were like, that's the unusual part, you know? And they got in a plane and we all flew up and drove around and I got scared out of my mind. Yikes. Sorry about that. So we flew up there and we check it out. And I just, I mean, I just know, I don't know why I knew I knew, but I got too scared and we came home and my grandfather said to my mom and grandmother, you should have left her up there. And so, I mean, clearly everyone kind of had this weird, I mean, and this is not how they function. So it was so, and the first time I applied to them, they turned me down because what had happened is after I finished that silly shit for Mount Carmel, I was, you know, I was bored and I wanted to do something, you know, I knew, and I had always known I wanted to go to college. So I just started taking junior college classes just for fun. So I just went down and I took like humanities and art and writing and dance and politics. And, you know, I was just taking classes while I was going to school for fun, doing my healing stuff, some health classes. Well, I didn't realize that made me a transfer student. So I didn't know that by taking classes, I just thought, well, I'm just kind of doing this, you know? So when I applied, to get in as a fresh person, they turned me down because I was no longer a fresh person. I had accrued so many units. I was a sophomore and a half, but by then I knew what I was doing. So I packed my shit up and I moved to Santa Cruz with no friends, no connection and no acceptance yet in school because I knew that that's what I was supposed to do. That's pretty much been like the trajectory of how things went from there is me just like, I often say like, I get the sense of what I'm supposed to do. And I take the leap before I can stop myself from doing it. And so then after I've taken the crazy leap, I freak out and I'm like, what have I done? You know, but I keep going because I know it's, you know, the right thing to do. So I got up there and that's really when everything, I mean, my whole, like just my whole life and path and all kinds of incredible stuff unfolded. And I took some other classes at another junior college because there were teachers from Santa Cruz, from Berkeley, from Stanford, teaching at all these, the junior colleges in the Bay Area are extraordinary. And so I learned about these teachers and I was just taking the classes until I could get into Santa. And I was taking classes up at UC Santa Cruz through extension too. And one of my teachers who taught the politics of consciousness and I, it was, it was like a, such a game changing class. And he was like, this is part of your path. And we were, you know, it was when I first read Paulo Freire, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And it was like, this is what I'm about. This is what my life is. And so he ended up writing an appeal letter for me to Santa Cruz, which is how they finally let me in. And by then I had all these credits. I was like a junior or something because I was just, ta- I was just going for it in life. Uh-huh. So I did a double major. I did a sociology. And like I said, I wrote my thesis on reexamining and critiquing treatment uh, substance abuse policy and treatment, particularly for youth and women. And I had an independent study in religious studies, and I was looking at the role of various kinds of faith and spirituality in social reform movements, especially modern day ones. So I was looking at liberation theology, the farm workers movement, the civil rights movement and the women's movement, and looking at what that role of faith played. I had phenomenal teachers. I had so, and then what happened, I ended up because I was, I was so impassioned in my education. I got so many units. I was one of the rare people in Santa Cruz who finished early. I actually graduated in three years because uh, with like, wait, like they told me you're done, which I look back now and I wish this is one place I wish I had uh, held a better boundary for myself. Cause you know, there's a famous rumor that people are at Santa Cruz for like six years or more because they're having amazing studies. And that was my, you know, that was my experience too, but I was one, they, I was probably one that they were like, Oh my God, let's get her out. And I didn't stop and say, no, I want to take more classes, mm-hmm. you know? So I had a phenomenal experience there. And 
pretty soon right after I got to Santa Cruz, I also started my formal work in the field. I worked in domestic violence and sexual assault. And I worked in the shelter and I did outreach and I worked in the crisis hotline. And then I trained volunteers working in the crisis hotline. And then I taught at the California Youth Authority to young male gang offenders from Los Angeles at the time. That's when the Crips and Bloods and Norteños and Soreños and some of those gangs were very, very active. And they were shipping a lot of the young folk up to the Redwoods youth authority camp. And so I taught victim awareness there for about two years. Every, I taught a six week course every two weeks. And then I also, I got a reputation for being really talented or good or whatever at working with particularly outreach to high schools and college students around assertiveness and working with sexual assault and like the skills to prevent being in domestic violence situations. And so I started doing a lot more of that and then training other professionals and how to do that work and, and how to do counseling. And, and I was also teaching at the high school uh, in a peer counseling class. And I was working at a uh, nonprofit that worked with youth and recovery. And I eventually ended up not only being a counselor for that program, but um, helping rebuild their high school. They had youth who were doing independent studies and they had to do these independent study packets and everyone was acting like because they were kids in recovery, that was the best to be expected of them. And I was like, that's bullshit. And so I brought in a bunch of my friends from college and we created a, all these classes and curriculum around women's healthcare and literature. And they made magazines and we taught about environmental sciences and we just created courses for them. And I, my friends tell stories that I sucked them all into mentoring without telling them what they were doing, which is probably true. Um, I feel like that's true. And I was doing work. Yeah, <laughs> it's totally true. And then I was doing other activism work around the environment and what was happening in El Salvador. And so it was a really, it was a huge, rich time in my life. Like it was, it, it's like, it all just dropped into place and none of it was or not that much of it, I'll say, was it wasn't a plan. It wasn't orchestrated. It was literally me following my life and the way it was unfolding. And so, you know, this, this time in my life was really me coming to understand that when I'm doing my own work and doing my own healing work, which I was doing a ton of that too, because there's amazing herbalists and all kinds of different healers and therapists. And I just did some really powerful, deep recovery work there. I mean, just like lots of transformation and being able to connect my own individual story to the collective story and understand and really challenge and not take on our, how our society wants each of us to take it as like, it's our individual pathology versus what's wrong in society. And so it was really just like super potent time in my life. I want to stop you there because that's fascinating. I'm not sure I understand it. Go back again about the individual pathology versus society. One of the things that we've done is we have taken byproducts of, and byproducts, I mean, consequences of social constructs, things like poverty, massive inequity, misogyny. I mean, just like there are a lot of layers baked into our social systems and we, instead of dealing with them collectively and recognizing that there is a collective level of work to be done, most of our quote unquote health or healing systems are focused on the individual as though it's their pathology. So, you know, a classic example is like 
in addiction, we don't take into account at all social constructs of poverty and racism and lack of meaningful engagement in life. And, you know, these opportunities that don't exist. And we say to people, you've got to deal with your mental health or your addiction stuff. It's about you, the individual, whatever is going on in you. So we've studied genetics. We've studied personal neurobiology. We've done all this work around uh, types of interventions of psychology, but we have not acknowledged that not all of that is individual, right? So yes, you do. And I'm a person who believes in personal accountability. Yes, it is true that when you get into recovery, that's your work to do whatever occurred, right? But simultaneously, it's absolutely inappropriate to act like, you know, rape and sexual assault, you know, and domestic violence. That's not an individual issue, even though it is an individual issue, right? If it occurs, it's something we have to deal with individually, but it's collective to live in a society that actually permits and in some cases sets up circumstances where it's implicitly supported or implicitly made possible. So that was one of the things I was able to, I was in an environment that really helped to connect and make real disentangling for me, let's say as a woman, me not being in there doing counseling to figure out what's wrong with me, that X, Y, and Z happened to me. If it was really like part of a social construct, that's not helpful for me to personalize that as though that was my pathology. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. I'm so glad you explained that because, oh my gosh, I'm going to say something that I have issues with, even though it's true, you know, that we can't change other people. All we can do is change how we are and how we react to something. Okay, true. But like you're saying, when you are in, you're in the right, but the rest of the world and society and the others are causing these issues. Oh my gosh. You know, and so that fight, that war that you must have inside everybody that, hey, yes, I I can react better and I can figure out how to help myself through this, but this shit shouldn't be happening in the first place. You know, these things Mm -hmm. shouldn't be allowed or be or ever have happened or whatever. And yeah, that's a, that's a big, that's a big dynamic right there to say, it's not your fault. Mm -hmm. Society, societal things exist. And yet all you can do is control yourself. So I'm glad you brought that up and I had never heard it exactly explained just like that. Yeah. I mean, see, that's what I think is really disempowering, like in some ways, and just like what you're saying, right? There's, it's, there's a truth. Of course it's true. We can't control other people. I mean, right. On some level, because there's all kinds of things all of us would probably like on small levels, like, you know, I don't want my husband to put the kitchen dishes back in the wrong place, (laughs) but I can't change that behavior, you know, on some level. And then on the big level, I don't want the kind of grave injustice to be perpetuated and to be accepted. But one of the things, so, so I'm agreeing with you, right? But here's the paradox. What happens is a lot of the helping structures and especially psychology and how self-helped and psychologized and pat spiritualized our society has been in a lot of ways has disabled a very important civic interdependent muscle, which is like one, one of my other mentors said, sister, daughter, throw your bucket down where you are, do what you can with what you have, right? So in all of democracy is built around this, that if you see it, it's part of yours to attend to and do. So what psychology has done has really said to people, just focus on yourself, just handle yourself actually to a real detriment 
because part of healing yourself is standing up and addressing the system. Mm -hmm. We see it over and over again. It's why we also have this culture that's obsessed with movies about truth tellers and change makers. And, you know, like, why do we keep gravitating toward that? Because we all recognize in ourselves that that's part of what we're here for too. That deep contribution. It's like, we say, it's okay if you want to do it and innovate in corporate America and make a million dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Innovate, innovate, do it there, stand up there. But when you do it about society, democracy, things that are part of the town commons, people are like, why are you doing that? Don't do that. That's not yours to do. Take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, that's nuts. That's bullshit, right? Because we want people to do it where actually the benefit is for a very small percentage of the people. And somehow we can commodify it, make a bunch of money on it because we've told a story, a social construct that says that that's the ultimate good, even though our humanity And all these studies come out and say, that's not actually the only thing we gravitate toward. There are many currencies and there are different kinds of success and quality of life. And in fact, what really matters that being part of a fabric of interdependence and having some sense of agency and yet a connectivity or a communion to a larger whole is, you know, part of like, this is why we're so into the maker movement right now, right? It's like literally on some level. Now, of course, we really like it when it's commodified and everyone's on Etsy selling their shit. But what we're also recognizing is that that creative contribution, that impulse is just inside of all of us. So that's what I think it's when we part of why a lot of healing maybe doesn't happen is we don't allow the whole system to resolve and evolve. It's actually healthy for a human to take a look at what went on in their life and to go, wow, that shit's systemic. I'm actually going to use my healing to be a part of that, to, to be a part of creating some change, making some reparation. That's a meaningful engagement. But what happens is it comes out in this way that we have to evangelize everyone to heal the way we ha- healed mm-hmm. because we don't actually understand that that we can engage in this other way, right? Like, so for me, what I say to people all the time is like, I don't, don't try to do what I did. First off, it took me many years of cobbling together a lot of different pieces. I created a program to make it easier for everyone after me. So please don't glamorize what I did, right? Like, but by the same token, don't get caught up on the pass along the way. The thing that matters the most is that what I did is I dug deep. I stayed committed. I tried shit on, I took suggestions, I followed a path, you know, like I created my own path off into the woods. And that's not to glamorize following our own path. It's that I had enough guts to go where my soul told me to go. And I, and I kept it going, you know, so I think a lot of people, they really get caught up in because they're so grateful for what's happening for them. They get caught up in that. It's this thing. It's this religion, this program, this meditation, this therapist, this book, this whatever. And really, I'm more interested in saying, look at the thing. Look at what a meaningful, deeply awake, aware, committed life looks like. Look at what soul recovery gifts can bring your path to that. I'm going to stop you there because I agree with you, but I also disagree in that when you say, look at what an authentic committed life looks like, doesn't it look different for everybody? Yeah. But I think that, um, of course, in some ways, and then in other ways, don't we know when we connect with people who live that way? I mean, I think there are some things like that I recognize when I connect with folks that are living that way, I recognize vitality. 
I recognize a sense of like them being in their own skin. And I recognize what it tends to do to the people around them. I recognize that they're pretty, pretty purposeful in the way they live their lives and their connections to community, that there is some sense of contribution that they're doing that, you know, there's certain things like it's not a pat formula that it looks the same way, but I think that we can come in contact with the felt experience Right. Like one of the things I was, I I think about a lot is that authenticity now has become formulaic. Like people are ascribing to the sense of authenticity. And it's like, I, when I'm teaching, I say to people, look, here's what authenticity really is. It means there's a sense in, in my experience for what that's worth is that there's a sense of coherence that all your parts, the warts, the weird things, the ugly stuff, the beautiful stuff, the boring stuff, whatever it is that they all hang together in this coherent way. They don't have to make sense. Mm. It doesn't, it's not some perfect scenario. It's that when you come into contact with that person, they're just, they're in their skin. It's not that I know everything about myself. Like people will often say they meet me and they're like, you're so real. Well, that doesn't mean I'm in control or that it's all put together. It doesn't mean any of that shit. It means that I feel comfortable knowing that there's all kinds of stuff in there, but they're held together by the core fabric of who I am, the essence of who I am. And I'm not trying to make them fit. There are parts of me that come out and I'm like, whoa, that's weird. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my goodness, I could talk to you all day about all this stuff and we don't have that much time left, unfortunately. (laughs) So focusing on how these things, serendipity, whatever word you choose to use in your life all came together to guide you on your path so that we can focus on Shakti. How did that come together? That goes back to high school. This is the inside story that most people don't know. Scoop. (laughs) So Shakti Rising started coming to me in dreams and waking visions while I was still in high school. In fact, I remember talking to, I think his name was JJ. JJ Spinelli. Um, Oh my God. I can't, I've been trying to remember his last name ever since. Class of 88, baby. Okay. So we were on a train. I think we were at a leadership thing in Santa Barbara and we were on a train on the way home. And I remember that he was the only person I told Mm. that this was happening. And I don't remember why, and I don't even know what happened next, but I remember telling him that I'd been having these visions and these dreams and I had been writing them down in a notebook and I didn't even know what they were about. I didn't know anything, but I knew it was something. So flash forward, to 1997 and I'm living in Cardiff and I'm at that point, let's just say I've done a lot, you know, graduated college with honors and I've run all these programs. I had started a street-based outreach program for homeless and runaway youth in Sacramento. I had run a statewide, huge juvenile delinquency prevention program, just been in a lot of places, done a lot of things. And I had left the field because I was like, I can't work in this broken system. And the one thing I knew I was supposed to do is work with youth and women on some level. It wasn't women only. It was really youth, you know, and teens into college years. But I was like, I just, I can't work in the broken system. And I don't know what this means. Am I giving up working with youth? I was just in this big spiritual transformation, blah, blah. It's a longer story. So I'm saying blah, blah, not because it's boring, but because it's too big for this moment. And I told a stranger on a Friday night for the first time about these visions that I had had, but I was saying to him, he was an environmental activist. So that's why I was telling him, 
I said, he was like, you have to do this. And I said to him, no, I'm not working with youth anymore. I don't know what that was about. I don't know what's happening now, but I do know whatever. Cause I had been talking about what I understood about challenges of activism and the connections that needed to happen and whole person and just whatever. And this young woman heard me saying stuff to him. She'd been over, she'd been uh, eavesdropping on her conversation. She came, she sat down next to me and said, I'm going to start that program with you. And I said, honey, I'm not doing that. Like, you know, I would have to break up with my then boyfriend who was like my love of my life soulmate um, in order to do that. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to, that was a Friday. Saturday, I got a letter from my boyfriend in the mail breaking up with me. My friend from college flew down that day by fluke because I had asked him to because my life was in this big, like I said, spiritual upheaving. So he got there. So I get this letter. Chris gets there. I'm like, I don't even know what to do. He's like, we need to get together with those young people. By Wednesday, we have a huge gathering of that activist, that young woman. Oh, that young woman who had gotten my number called me on Monday and said, I quit my job. I'm going to come work with you. So Friday, I have the conversation. Saturday, I get the breakup letter. Chris shows up. Monday, she calls me. I quit my job. I'm going to work with you. Wednesday night, I have all these young so 18 to 25 year olds at my house. And all of a sudden I'm mentoring this circle, young men and women, and I'm doing expressive arts therapy and energy healing and yoga. I'm getting to do all the shit. Just, I can do anything with them because it's not in a formal program. So I can bring forward all the stuff I've been doing in my own life. So herbs and aromatherapy, as well as like trauma therapy and, you know, so soul work and then helping them with college and helping them get jobs and just kind of doing, just mentoring people. Cause this is something that I've done and they come to my door and I'm helping them out, but they start telling their friends and then they start telling their friends. And pretty soon every Friday night, I have like 15 young people and my door is never locked and they're always coming over. And I'm like, something's happening here. And then I, one day I'm in the shower and I have this waking vision and Lauren, this really happened. I suddenly, and it was like, this really happened to me. I saw myself get out of the shower, someone knock on my door and I get out of the shower and I wrap a towel around myself and I walk to the door to open it just to be like, I'm in the shower and I open it and it's my destiny on the doorstep. And I don't know how I realize it, but it's my destiny. And I slam the door shut and I run in my towel, mind you, to the back of the house. I run from my destiny. Now, what's very funny is in the back of the house, there's a wall. So I can't get out. So I witness this kind of waking vision while I'm in a shower. And then I start laughing at myself because I'm like, you ran to the, you didn't even run out a door, you dummy. You know, like I ran to a closet, but it was so incredibly profound. Like I, my psyche knew my destiny had arrived. Wow. Like it was happening to me, but I didn't know what was happening to me. So those are the years that I say that I was like pregnant with Shakti rising, that it was incubating. That was 1997. And then 1999, by then it had become, I was working with just women, which is not something I ever would have ever said I was going to do, but I moved into the first Shakti rising house in sep on September 9th of 1999 with five women. And within the first two months, we had had like 200 women coming for workshops. The house was overrun and word of mouth was just spreading all through the community that there was this woman who was working with young women and was making change with people that no one else had been able to reach. And that's how the organization was born. And my commitment with those first young women that, I, that moved into the house was that I certainly had all this experience and training and education and my own recovery and all this, but that 
we were going to work in what's now known as emergent design. So what that meant is I didn't just come up with a program and design it and map it out and say, this is what I'm going to do. Not because I couldn't do that, but because that's not what was being called. I worked with those women to evolve what eventually became the whole organization. And it was always, you know, founded on one, one thing that is like my biggest passion is I'm a teacher. I've been a teacher since I was 19, you know, and I'm a teacher's teacher. So I've gone on to train all kinds of people, teach them in corporate settings and blah, blah. So I knew that liberation education, experiential, embodied, deeply holistic, trauma-informed, sustainable, community-oriented, creative education was the foundation of all the work. And then there was what we were going to do with trauma and recovery and healing and that kind of piece. And then there was leadership development. And that's what the organization evolved around. So that now, you know, that's kind of what our work falls within. The biggest thrust of the work is through Shakti University. Shakti Feminine U is what we call it. And it's a university without walls. It's women-centered, pretty pr- pretty profound education. It's life-changing, you know, and it happens around four main topics. Rosemary, we call it, they're all named after a spice or an herb. So Rosemary, which is about um, economy, ecology, and soul. So it's money, work, philanthropy. Rosemary, which is around ecology, economy, and soul. So it's work around money, work, life, purpose, philanthropy, health and wellness, then personal transformation. Cause we know that that's, a, you know, big, we're all, lots of people we want to be who we're meant to be and do the work to be connected to ourselves and in our bodies and then work around leadership development. And then, you know, like we've talked about, we have a specialty in trauma and recovery work. So we teach, we teach workshops around that. And, and then also I do consulting around leadership, individual coaching around leadership work, but also we work with organizations. So I go out and consult and do trainings and partner with other organizations. Wow. So anyone around the world can participate in these trainings online. And then do you still have people living in like Shakti houses now too? Two years ago. Yeah. We put a pause on the live-in apprenticeship program. One, because we had been doing that for 18 years, 365 days a year. Wow. Right. 24 hours a day, raising up women, raising up leaders, doing healing and, and all of that. It was profound and powerful. And there are families that exist today that wouldn't have existed if we weren't doing that work. But I really knew that we needed to, to, to really, to take a break. You know, every field needs to be fallow for a while. It was a very hard decision because there are no programs like it that we found yet you know, for who we serve. There are programs, if you want to spend a lot of money, like $75,000, right? Like, but ours was geared toward people like us, right? That this kind of work should be available for anyone in their community. So it was a very difficult decision to pause it because we knew that this wasn't available, but we also, it's really all consuming. I mean, if you've raised a family, you know this, right? Well, we were raising a village. We had many women living there at any given time. And we've been being asked for a very long time to help train other communities and organizations in our approach and how it worked. And we just didn't, we couldn't, we didn't have enough bandwidth to do both. So we paused that. And now we've actually been rolling out more comprehensive training programs. So the upside is that we're actually doing things like teaching holistic emotional first aid to community members and organizations and train the trainer and, you know, developing that. And I'm now teaching a three month deep dive soul recovery programs for people who are already doing healing work, because it's very hard to find good, deep work, the farther you go on the path, right? The path gets narrower. So there's an upside to it. And there's a downside because we know, I mean, I get texts almost every day, people looking for, you know, meaningful services for themselves, for their daughters, for their friends and their sisters. So 
that program is paused for now. Tell us more about Shakti and how we, anyone who might be listening to this could not get involved. I hate that expression. Anyone who's hearing this, what do you want their takeaway to be when they hear about their Shakti rising? Wow, Lauren, that is an awesome inquiry. What would I want people to take away? Um, Gosh, can I just riff on this across the board? Here's what I would really want people to take away. One, get involved. Like get involved in something in your life, in your community. Like volunteerism and service and involvement is the backbone of democracy. And what I've noticed in the years since I've been doing this work is that everyone thinks they have to start their own nonprofit. And I just want to say this for the record. I never wanted to start my own. I tried to start it as a program through another nonprofit because it doesn't, it doesn't, first off, it doesn't belong to us. If you're doing something really meaningful, it belongs to the village. Right. And second, this idea that we have to try to do our own thing. I think it's so silly because each of us is special we are already a unique snowflake. There is no one else like you, right? That's So you don't have a point to prove about that. If you just go about being your weird, cool self, there you go, right? So in that, it means that to be what I have found to be part of something bigger than me, because Shakti Rising is part of a movement around creating woman and child-friendly societies. That is a hundred-year piece of work. I'm building on the work that's gone before me, and there will be people coming after me. But what I hope is in our lifetime that there's some profound changes, because work for women and girls is work for the health of the whole. That is what is true, right? Like when everyone says to me, well, what about the men? I'm like, why? When I talk about being for women, does that automatically mean against someone else? Because that's not my experience, right? Now, I understand that that is some people's experience, but this is how deep it is into our culture that we can't support this. So what I want to say is like, this is a big piece of work that, that is up for all of us. How do we create communities, societies, enterprises that are life-affirming, that are regenerative? Find the thing local, but make sure you look at the global landscape, because it's important that what we do up close and intimate is informed by a larger worldview. You need, like, let's get to know the other. If you don't know what the thing is before you decide it's wrong or irreverent, why don't you get curious about it, right? And connect with it. Recognize that you we make so many impacts on people, the things that we don't even in the moment think are significant. Like what I just said, that train ride in the car with JJ when I was 17 years old, talking about something that was going to go on to be the reason, part of my soul purpose, literally my dharma, and to tell another human being, like, I still remember it. I'm 52 years old. I'm, I'm at this moment that, you know, and I still remember JJ and I remember yeah. that encounter. And for him, it was probably like his listening, his connection, whatever it was that drew that out of me, yeah. right? It's like you reaching out to me however many years ago, I think on Facebook and being caring and expressing interest and giving a shit about what I was up to, like it made a difference for me, right? If we just don't know about those intersections, you know, I mean, I think about how many, I remember a young woman standing up at a Shakti graduation and telling a story about how she had tried to kill herself and was in the hospital and had sent me a message on Facebook. And this is back when I was on Facebook and she was a stranger. I didn't know her, you know, 
people did this all the time. They would write me and tell me their stories and how I wrote to her back. And I talked about recovery and that she could do it and that I believed in her and here's what was possible. And that is what made her decide not to end her life and keep going. And I did not know that, right? This was me just showing up, doing the thing. So I think that we, there's gravitas in our daily choices and our daily acts and lifting up good work and investing meaningfully with our time and our energy and our care and our resources it really is necessary for our health and for the health of the whole. And the other thing that I would just say is just remember that there's no such thing as individual resilience, meaning it's not just solo. You need to be individually resilient, but our resilience is completely impacted by the system we're embedded in too. So if you want to be really resilient, grow this resilience of the systems around you, in your family, in your workplace, in your community, and get really clear. This isn't just psychological resilience. That is an important part of it, mindset. But it's actually factual, the ways we need to grow systemic resilience. Learn about that a little bit, you know, and practice that and share about that. So those are things I would say. And you know, do the work to be slightly uncomfortable. Mm. That's where the joy is. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. And earlier you were saying about how people, you know, will come to you and say, what should I do? And basically tell me how to walk this path and what book worked for you and all these different things. And unfortunately, I'm now going to ask you that because you can't talk to every single person and not every single person is going to you know, sign up for a class. But if you could share with the audience some books that have inspired or helped or forged your path, however you respond to this question about books, you know, what do you want to recommend to others? Well, I'm an avid reader. I love reading. It's how I like, I don't know, just part of how I keep my own well full, you too. So books are friends. My favorite books are friends. It's hard for me to distill that down. And I don't often make like just mass recommendations, but let me see what might arise. I mean, there's a few things. Well, first I would say, pay attention to where your longing and your deep desires, not your superficial wants, but where your longing and deep desires direct you. That's one thing Two, I would say, get connected to nature, get intimate with the wild. And I don't mean go conquer it. I mean, get curious. It could be a flower growing in your garden an herb you've been curious about, a tree that you like, a river, a rock, a mountain, a place, a location, but develop a relationship and a sacred one where you care for it, not just where it cares for you, right? I think that's one of the best books that we could read. I personally was really affected by like a lot of writings of Gandhi and King and early women activists and, you know, like that work like those books and recordings, Miles Horton, Paulo Freire, like liberation pedagogy, like made a really big impact on me. Like actually Abraham Lincoln, I'm rereading a lot of his writings about and really learning about leadership. There was a book called Circle of Stones by Judith Durick that really, I say often, I read it at 25 and I understood something really powerful was there, but it took me a long time to live into it because it's very much like Marion Woodman, her work, the Jungian, the realm of soul and psyche where there's no self-help to be had, right? There's like this journey to unfold. It kind of makes you a little bit crazy before you get to the, you know, the realm of 
you know, it's funny, I kind of started this with a very Jungian theme and point of view. And I think you are maybe only the second person out of like 35 who's actually ever brought him up. Mm. Isn't that weird? Yeah, but it is weird because I feel like Jung is so much a part of our vernacular. Mm. It's so much, I mean, it's in American zeitgeist. I mean, psychology really is. And then in some ways it's not because that work now there it's there's some problems right inside of our tendency to want to make like feminine and masculine and all these things just to try to relate to them through the construct when they're actually like primal energies that are a bit ineffable that we just have to kind of live into as best we can right our language gestures toward it but but what is really important is that what it opens for us is the understanding psyche is about soul it's not psychology right it's something it's symbolic it's archetypal it's you know mythic it's 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 messy it's not this pat formula and and it's i think it's the deepest path it's the recognition of synchronicity and like living in a relationship with the soul of the world oh my god that's beautiful that's gonna be the title of this episode right there yeah, i love it oh. well so i would also say like dr estes oh, and yes. martin and now Sharon Blackie, Women Who Rose Rooted, like that genre. Marion Woodman, like a must have. One of my dear friends, Sarah Beek, wrote The Red Book and Red Hot and Holy, which I feel like just speaks so potently. And I'll say one more, Terry Tempest Williams and When Women Were Birds. And if you don't know that book and the story of that, she's an incredible environmental writer activist. She is a poet who is tapped through the deserts of Utah and places she's been in the world and knows how to make mosaic of experiences and words and cobble images that emerge of soul. And she speaks into something really essential about the loss of her mother and something that an awakening that occurred for her, I guess I might say, after that in When Women Were Birds. I feel like it's a really worthwhile read. I have heard of that book, but I haven't read it. I've only read like maybe a third of everything that you're listing out here, but I will have links to all of it on the uh, in the show notes. But I love that you talked about all the things that made me want to start this, you know, that messiness of the soul and the synchronicity of how all these things happen and work together. And if you're plugged in and aware and paying attention and trying to have some sort of unification with all these things going on that it's it can be beautiful it can be messy but it's always going to be interesting Mm. yeah that's really Mm -hmm. so i cannot believe you had time for me and us but i really thank you and i'm so glad we keep reconnecting through the years and i'm so thankful for what you do in the world yeah I'm super appreciative that you invited me. I'm shy. Most people don't know this. I'm actually very shy by nature. And so it's kind of funny that I was chosen to do something that in my life requires me to be out there so much. And I think that's probably even part of what you may have connected with in high school, the way it manifested, right? I I tell my friends now I'm like the moon. Sometimes I go dark, but I'm always there. I have to go inside and into nature and unplug in order to, to to, to be connected to myself and to serve, you know, in the world, the way that I do. But when you asked, I felt so honored and I was like, okay, even though I'm shy, I'm going to, I'm going to try to show up for this. And you were so patient to 
work with me and my insane schedule. Well, I, I do understand why it's insane, but I also feel like it will happen when it's meant to happen. I don't know why now it was meant to happen, but hey, you just roll with it. And it's funny because everyone generally thinks that I'm this big extrovert and outgoing and stuff. And really what it is, I've I've sort of figured out in the recent years is that I'm sort of drawn to people like you that have a lot of shit going on underneath and I want to dig into it. And so I, I pursue you or that type of person and I want to like bring it out and bring it out and get to know you. And it doesn't mean that I'm outgoing. It means I actually want to be in your head. <laughs> so I hear in that, that you're a person who's really attracted to complexity and depth Yes, and that you know, to recognize it, that you're someone who perhaps sees beyond the surfaces. So whereas other people may not know it all, you have this innate, maybe it's even like some kind of innate um, radar, right? Like that's a deep water swimmer. And so you gravitate toward them and you're like, I see you, I know you're a deep water swimmer. Yes. Yes. I like that. I like the deep water swimmer. And you know, what's funny when you were talking about the getting out of the village, like climbing the walls to get back into the woods. Oh my God. I was totally picturing the movie, the village by M night Shyamalan. Oh, about how the craziness that is in the village and how people weren't telling the truth and hiding what was going on. And then saying that the outside world was scary and all that. I haven't watched that movie in so long. And so I know people tore it apart and I don't remember exactly why, but your story, your visuals work so well with, I think the themes and that the myth that I took from that movie. So I was picturing you like climbing the wall and like going through the trees to like figure out where am I in this world? And then you find out because then the camera pans out and you find out that it was just this tiny little village in this big world, not far from Philadelphia, as it turned out. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, I um, remember the first time I saw Stardust, I had that same, um, I was like, oh my God, I kind of had that experience, like trying to get through the wall, like being not being allowed to go through the wall into the magical realms because people are like, don't go there. And I was like, but I'm from there. Yeah. Like, yeah, I like that. Well, honey, you've given me a sense of joy and home and mm. place and focus. So I am off because it's only 1030 here. I'm off to like do cool things today because of you. I don't know what they'll be except for getting my hair did. <laughs> <laughs> I probably could use one of those myself as well. I'm really grateful for the conversation and for the opportunity to just listen and see what would emerge because of your deep listening, Lauren, and, and what you're attuned to. And so cool that this, that what part of what drives me in my life is what sparked this conversation series. And I love that you helped me remember JJ's name. And I hope, gosh, wherever he is in the world, I just want to offer up a giant blessing to him for being like that pivotal moment for me. And now I'm going to seek him out and say, do you want to be on because who knows, maybe we'll come full circle that you inspired him somehow. Well, I mean, that would be amazing. Yeah. But if you connect with him, I want to hear about it. And thank you for doing this and putting the voice out there and connecting like you are. I feel like you're really lifting up a lot of people and giving them a chance to speak into and, and listen to themselves, you know? So thank you for that. You know, I try to tell people that I know 
really freaking interesting people and they have awesome stories to tell. And it's not just for celebrities to have this vehicle when there's so much meaningful opportunity in sharing our stories and realizing that we're connected and how do we do our own thing, but as part of the bigger whole and stop being so focused on yourself and, and figure out what's really at play in this interconnectedness thing. And so I was really glad that you talked about the society versus the, the person too. So that was spot on lady. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. Thank you again for being here. Thanks. Love you too. Okay. Revelers. So you've made it to the end. Here's all the stuff that I want to say and give shout outs to. It is important as you lift up your friends, yourself, your female relatives, that we realize that it is totally fine and helpful to know yourself well enough to speak to your own accomplishments and the things that you've overcome in your path. If you were sort of wrinkled a little bit by hearing Shannon talk about herself, maybe it sounded like she was boasting. Maybe it sounded like she was bragging. Maybe it sounded like she shouldn't say these things. But you know what? We definitely have a culture that does not reward women for talking about ourselves the way that uh, men talk about themselves. Now, that's not to say that every man is quote unquote boastful or prideful or anything like that, but they definitely know how to toot their own horn and society rewards that. And I think that we should realize that it is helpful for us to speak about ourselves in a confident way. So Shannon does that. And I want to give a shout out to Inetta Lucosius, who runs an amazing group on Facebook called Grow the Love. And every week, she does a day where she asks all of the followers to brag about what's going on in their lives, what they've accomplished. And it is so, so helpful. And it's definitely empowering. Another person who doesn't brag for themselves very much, but definitely knows how to brag about her kids is my friend Terry Wright Lyman. And I want to give a shout out to her and her awesome daughter, Emily. Emily is probably right now has already defended her thesis. And I really see that she is like maybe a future Shannon, that she is going to do that critique of the world's systems right now and how the LBGTQ community is. I don't know her thesis well enough to use the right word here. So I'm just going to say treated. So I think that she's going to be doing amazing things like Shannon has done. Okay, so another thing that Shannon brought up was to not get so worried about having a bad memory. And then I read a, a wonderful book called The Midnight Library. I highly recommend it. It's obviously part of my uh, books I recommend on my bookshop.org list. And in it, the author says that the philosopher Hobbes Yes, Hobbes of Calvin and Hobbes fame posited the theory that there is no difference in our brains between imagination and memory. That really hit home for me. And after a whole lifetime, basically, of 
just revering, reveling in, adoring the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. How did I not know that? Maybe I knew it subconsciously and it was hiding and it's now come out. So I am going to make a conscious effort to not worry about what I forget because it's, as Shannon points out, it's okay. So I feel better about that and I highly recommend that book and I highly recommend Calvin Hobbes, of course, too, because it's amazing. And big request. If anyone knows how to get a hold of JJ Spinelli, please send that information to me. Tell them about this episode and get them to me, please. And finally, if you are at all interested in knowing more about Shakti, of course, it and everything we talked about is in the show notes. And there are great links that will help you sign up for the classes or donate. And as Shannon has said about volunteering in your area, you know, if you're a regular listener, I talk a lot about volunteering in your local community. And it is the best way to not just give back, but to help you find yourself and feel good about yourself and change the world that you live in. Oh, there's so much more I wanted to say about this, but we've got more great episodes coming up and I will leave it at that. And hopefully we are building a better community together by participating in this little project. So thank you all and uh, go call your mom. <laughs>